Welcome to Legacy Sport Live, stories of the people who are shaping the conversation at the intersection of sport, business and purpose. I'm Neil Duffy, co-author of our new book, Legacy Sport, how to win at the business of sport in the age of social good. Today I talk to Matthew Campelli, founder and editor of the Sustainability Report, an essential source of intelligence and insight for the sports industry. Matthew shares with us his insights on the state of sport for good and where it's headed. So Matthew, you're sitting right at the hub of the conversation around sport and purpose, sport and sustainability, or lots of different terms used to describe um, you know, something similar. Um, where, where do you think the industries come from uh, in terms of its adoption of sustainability or purpose? And, and uh, wh- where are we at right now? Well, I think sort of 10, even five years ago that sport and sustainability, sport and purpose, they, that, was, that was quite separate from the kind of intrinsic business of, 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 sport, of sport. And it was paid lip service, I suppose, by the major sports players, by the sports media as well. Um, but now I think what we're seeing is, is that we're seeing a handful of leading organizations, leading leagues and, and clubs who are actually incorporating this idea of sustainability, uh, social and environmental development and purpose um, into, their, into their core business and seeing as, as a way for them to develop, um, you know, engage more with fans, engage more with sponsors, develop more streams of income. Um, but I think this is still in the kind of, uh, it's, in, it's still in its infancy to some, to some degree. There's only a handful of really leading organizations doing this. Um, but hopefully in the next two to three years, we'll see more organizations pick up the mantle as they see their, um, their counterparts doing well out of this. And so are there, are there any favorites that you have? Any examples um, that are doing it well, in your opinion? Well, I guess you've always got your, you kind of go to organizations like your, you know, your Forest Green Rovers, um, who are obviously very, uh, you know, one of the, the clubs that you would, uh, you would, um, instantly think of when you think of sustainability they were obviously a vegan menu um they're building an Orwood stadium they're planning permission for it they think about transport they think about energy but there are some other organizations that perhaps you wouldn't think of initially that are doing some really interesting things what one of my favorite stories um i've covered recently is what world athletics formerly known as the iaaf what they're doing around air quality um and what they're doing is they're trying to install air quality monitors in all of their certified tracks they're doing a lot around air quality at their upcoming events. Um, they're doing a lot around air quality at their open road um, events, like their, their marathons and half marathons. And I think that's really interesting because that's really intrinsic to the sport. They know that their athletes, not just their elite athletes, but their grassroots athletes, the, you know, the runners will go jogging just for fun or to keep fit. The air quality is a real issue for them, particularly if they run in cities. Um, so these kind of organizations that pick a sustainable development goal or an issue that is really intrinsic to their actual sport and trying to do something really powerful around that, I think it's quite an interesting concept. So just, I'm, I'm not that familiar with that initiative. So I, I'm aware that they, they have chosen to focus on air quality, but so in addition to monitoring air quality in the locations where they, they held their events, how are they translating the knowledge or insight that they develop out of that into programs to improve air quality, for example, in those venues? 
Well, they, improving air quality, I think, is going to be tricky for them, particularly if they're doing it in, in major cities where they, they could potentially work with the local government to, um, to, to, you know, to inform them with, with data and help them to, to, to build policy around, around air quality or traffic control and things like that. But what they're really trying to do is they're, is they're monitoring in the upcoming events, they're going to be monitoring athlete health as well. So they're going to be looking at the correlations between air quality and athlete performance. And perhaps instead of looking at ways to improve air quality in actual city, they can look at times of day um, when the air quality is slightly better than when it isn't and perhaps build their events um, around the times of the day in that city where the athlete is, is less prone to being um, um, you know, hit by, uh, by poor air quality. That's interesting. We should, we should have a chat to them about how they can actually take that to the next level. I mean, there, there is a, an, an example in another sport where they've done something similar, which is the ocean race, where they're collecting water samples as the teams race around the world, um, actually collecting data of the quality of the water that, that the boats race through. But what I love about that program is they're actually then using that data to drive um, impact projects in those locations that will actually be focused on improving the quality of the water. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think when I think the IAAF or World Athletics is there now known, they did something similar in Mexico City. They um, recorded the air quality of the Mexico City Marathon last year. And I think they worked fairly closely with the, um, the local government there because they've got big qualities, big issues around air quality in Mexico City. So I think if, if they can get local government and business involved in that conversation, then that will be, be a really interesting prospect. So... My, my kind of read of the situation is that I think sport is probably five to 10 years behind uh, mainstream business and it's sort of adoption and understanding of purpose. I mean, as you said, there are examples of um, sports properties, teams, athletes that are, that do get it and have fully embraced it. But in the main, I think they're probably five to 10 years behind what's happening in mainstream business. Do you think that, do you think that's an accurate observation? Yeah, I mean, I suppose from my point of view, I, th I think it's probably difficult to put a, a length of time on it, but I think that you're right. I think, that, I think they're substantially behind big business um, and organizations, sort of, you know, Fortune 500 organizations that rely on customers and that, um, that are major players in, in, in industry. And I think this is mainly because sport is, um, sport, I think, sees itself as slightly separate from any other business. And I think sports... I think sport's main strength is also its main weakness in this area. And I think sport can be quite complacent when it comes to its customers or its, uh, its supporters. Um, whereas if, for example, if I want to go and buy a pair of jeans and I think that there is a gene maker that is more sustainable than another gene maker, then that, 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 that's a reason for me to go and to, 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 switch, to switch brands and go with that particular manufacturer of jeans. Whereas if I'm, if I, if I'm a follower of a particular sport, or a particular football club, then I've got a real emotional attachment to that football club. And it, even if they do things that are slightly, perhaps ethically not so good, um, or not very good for the environment, or not very good socially, I think it's more difficult to break that bond. And as a result, I think sport is possibly more complacent and hasn't put these practices in, in place uh, in the same way that other businesses have. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I often think about that. And I, but there are examples where fans have kind of voted with their feet when clubs do behave badly. Oh, that's right, yeah. You know, I think of that example of Ray Rice. Was it not Ray Rice or one of those the top NFL players uh, was involved in doing something bad? And the next day there were, um, you know, the fans lining outside the stadium to hand back their jerseys because they didn't want mm -hmm. to be associated with him as an athlete. So, yeah. yeah, so it's an interesting point. But I, I mean, what we are seeing a lot of right now in sport is uh, what I call kind of greening activity. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of focus on delivering a waste program, kind of things, things that are kind of looking at the, 
operational side of the business. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, but that seems to be where the focus of the critical mass of, of attention and focus is right now. Mm-hmm. Um, are there, are there any, um, you know, examples that you've seen of, of innovative ways that, that sports properties teams are, are addressing the operational supply chain side of things when it comes to sustainability? Yeah, I think the operational side of things, I think, is the kind of the low hanging fruit, I suppose, for lots of these organizations in that um, it's, 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 you know, it's, it can be challenging, obviously, to, to, to make things, uh, you know, to go for things like 100%, you know, um, uh, away from landfill or 100% renewable energy, which can be quite tricky, but it, that's easy operation, you know, actually trying to engage fans or engage sponsors, which can require a little bit more legwork. Um, but some of the more interesting um, uh, aspects of this uh, some of the more interesting projects i think when you look at kind of you know renewable energy and how you power a, a stadium and i think iax in amsterdam i think is a really really good example of this they've recycled old nissan batteries which they're using in their stadium now so when they are generating renewable energy when they're generating solar power via their their um, panels on their roof they're actually storing that energy so when they're not using it on match days they're selling the energy back to the grid so as well as using clean energy when they're actually playing matches at the, at the uh, what is now the Johan Cruyff Stadium, they know that they're in that stadium a very small percentage of the time that it, that, um, that stadium is is operational. So a lot of the energy they're sending back to the grid is generating income for them. So as well as being environmentally sustainable, it's also creating another um, another um, revenue stream. Revenue exactly. Was that in my mouth? Revenue stream exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's a great example. And I think that's possibly where, you know, from an operational perspective, sport needs to think about going. It's not, it's no longer enough just to do less bad. You have to actually look for ways, actively look for ways to do more good. So that's a great example, uh, doing more good than bad and being a net, net positive contributor to the energy grid. Love that. Yeah. Example. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, and you know, it's not just about the environmental stuff either, is it? The social piece is also um, gaining more importance. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, I mean, we spoke, uh, I touched briefly about fans uh, and sports potential complacency in this area, but I think you're right what you said. I think the kind of, the makeup of fans is changing now. And whereas perhaps fans, you know, previous generations of fans, maybe even five, 10 years ago, cared about the results on the pitch more than anything else. I think we are seeing fans vote with their feet a little bit. And I think we are seeing fans becoming more acutely aware of what, um, of how how their sport and how their team can actually impact their community around them. Um, not just like you say, environmentally, but also socially as well. Um, I think when we look at particularly clubs in the, in the English Premier League, for example, they've become such businesses now that they, that they there's a sense that they're becoming a little bit kind of um, separate from their communities. Um, and this isn't sitting well with fans, I don't think. And I think that we'll see a big push for these kind of organisations to become you know, work with their communities a, a bit more closely, particularly on the, on the social side of things like education, poverty, hunger. I mean, even mixing, you know, environmental and social aspects, for example, like, you know, recycling food waste um, and, and donating food uh, to, you know, local charities and local communities. So I think that's something that's, that's going to become um, mainstream, um, hopefully in, in the near future. Yeah. It's actually a really interesting point that you raised because the, the sort of uh, the genesis of, of English football was from the community, wasn't it? That's where it all started. And that's exactly. it's been a major feature. I mean, if you think about the difference between English soccer and, and MLS soccer in the US, for example, 
that community base is what really makes the difference between the two so so obvious so i think that's a really good call there yeah and and and, and i mean some of some of the you know some of the clubs some of the fans are pretty pretty actively active and outspoken aren't they they are and i, I think particularly if, if we stick on the example of, of the premier league and just european football football is going through this kind of European football is going through this kind of hyper-capitalist stage now where competition on the pitch is becoming... Uh, there, there, are, there are a handful of clubs now that will win their league titles that will compete in Europe now, which is, which is not sitting well with fans of other teams. Um, and if, if we're going to go through this era of clubs, of a, of a select handful of clubs that are winning everything... Um, and, and being, you know, dominant in, in, in their sport, then I think fans really want to see them become more socially and environmentally aware off the pitch. You know, if, if, they're, if they're going to generate all this wealth and win everything, then they've got, um, then, then it's, uh, you know, it's, it's an obligation for them to, 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 to be more in tune with their communities and, and the environment, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that raises a, another interesting point. It's a good segue into what I wanted to ask you next, which was if the fans are starting to get pissed off with the clubs for not being... <laughs> grounded in their community, which is what they've always been used to. Uh, one of the reasons that, that corporations sponsor clubs in this example is because it gives them access to the fans. So mm-hmm. how are you seeing sponsors starting to react to this, this whole kind of move to be more purposeful that's underway? Well, I think when, uh, well, I've spoken to a number of organizations within, within the, the sports industry and a number of people are saying to me now that when they're having conversations with potential commercial partners and potential sponsors, that one of the first things that they'll ask now, jet, ask them now genuinely is what they're doing environmentally and socially. It's not about getting eyeballs on their, uh, on their, um, on their logo eyeballs on their, on their offer, but about being involved in something, working together on activations that are actually going to have a, a, a big stake in the community. That's actually going to do some, some real good in their community. Um, they, they don't want people just to, just to see their brand and hopefully, you know, think about it next time they make a purchase. They want them to have a real kind of halo effect around their brand. And working with sport in a way that, that contributes very, you know, nicely to the community or to the environment is a, is a good way to do that. Right. And you mentioned the SDGs earlier on. Are you seeing a sort of increased interest in the SDGs as a framework around which this activity is happening? I think so. And I think when you talk about sport being behind business, I think they're, they're, they're also behind in, in this respect as well. I mean, the SDGs is quickly becoming the language of business now. If you look at many, you know, big... Um, sustainability reports and annual reports from big organizations, they'll look at the SDGs and they will model some of their KPIs around SDGs. So, for example, I mean, I mean, if we look at an organization like Danone, for example, they, they will look at the SDGs and look at how their actual business impacts on three or four SDGs that are very intrinsic to their brand, like hunger, like environment, like climate, for example. I'm not sure that sport is quite there yet with that. There are a couple of examples. I think Juventus Football Club, if you look at their sustainability report, they look at the SDGs and they've picked out two or three SDGs that they see as intrinsic to their club. I think good health and well-being and education are two of the SDGs that they've picked out. I think the Ocean Race and Formula E naturally will look at SDGs around, like you said before, ocean health and air quality and climate. But I think the SDGs is still a conversation that is very nascent in sport. And I don't think you'll find currently many sports executives around the handful of real leaders actively thinking about the SDGs currently. Yeah. I mean, it was quite interesting. I, don't, I, I think you were there, but at the Global Sports Week recently, when I was uh, moderating a panel, mm-hmm. I asked the audience how many of them have heard of the SDGs, and there were about three hands went up in the room. Yeah, which is crazy. I didn't expect 700 that. people. So, yeah. yeah. 
but but why i mean why should people care about the sdgs it's just another un thing that's out there and I mean, why do you think they're important i mean i, I suppose they are uh, I, I get that line of thinking but i think when you compare the sdgs to the millennial development goals i think the sdgs have had more traction i think if you speak to people on the street the majority of them may not know what the sdgs are but i think if you talk to people working in business and working in, in, in industry I think that the SDGs are becoming more of a conversation now. I think that there's more traction with them than the, than the Millennium Development Goals. Um, but like you say, is that filtering down into sport and to the, the minds of the general public? Perhaps not. Yeah. I think there's an interesting opportunity around the SDGs. I mean, imagine if we could aggregate uh, the difference that sport is making across you know, multiple sports, multiple markets through the, the frame of the SDGs. Yeah. I think it'd be quite impressive in terms of the difference that sport can make as a contrib- contributor towards the SDGs. So that's a absolutely, yeah. Certainly on certainly on my agenda is something to try and, and push um, over the next couple of years. Yeah, uh, undoubtedly, undoubtedly, and 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 uh, I think sport. If you, I, I think one of the issues as well with sport is I think we fall back on that Nelson Mandela phrase about the power of sport very often, um, without actually quantifying, you know, what that means. But but I think you're right. If we did try to quantify it you would see that sport has a, has a massive positive impact on many of the sustainable development goals. And I think if you look at um, the, the Commonwealth Secretariat uh, is actually putting to, is trying to put together a, 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 kind, of, uh, a kind of metric, um, a kind of way to measure the SDGs in relation to sport uh, and sport for development. So that could be potentially something that, um, a, a way that we can measure that, that kind of impact going forward, hopefully. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. So, um, so we've spoken about the properties. We've spoken about sponsors. We've spoken a little bit about fans. Let's talk about the athletes next. Mm-hmm. Um, the athletes are really active in the space. I mean, arguably the most active. Well, certainly here in the US. I'm not sure how, what it's like in Europe. I'd be interested to hear your your feedback on that. But the athletes' voice has become a lot stronger in the last couple of years, and they have a lot more influence and. Um, you know, they're starting to recognize the value of doing good while doing well in terms of mm-hmm. how they build their own brands. What, what are you seeing on the athlete front, Matthew? I think that we're coming to a time now where athlete activism, um, I think if you want to be an athlete that stands out in the, this, in, in, in the, in the, in the marketplace uh, or in the, in the minds of, of fans, I think that you're going to, you, you will have to be an activist. I think eventually that, that will be the, that will be the aim of, of, of athletes to be aligned with a, a, a purpose or a cause that, that, that transcends their sport or transcends themselves. I think we're seeing, like you say, athletes in the US um, who I think are a little bit ahead of the game um, or athletes in Europe. And that may be for a few reasons. I think because of the political climate in the US, I think injustice may seem a little more pronounced in the US than it is in Europe currently, um, particularly among race, um, LGBT climate. I just think because of the, the, the political climate now, I think a lot of these these issues are coming to the fore a little bit more than perhaps they are in Europe. But I think that's changing. I think in Europe we're seeing similar kind of governments come into come into power in in the UK and in in, in Western Europe. Um, and I think inevitably we'll see um, big athletes following suit um, and looking at what uh, athletes are doing in the US and, and and saying that this is a that they need to they need to stand up and be counted. I mean, do you think it's something that athletes should be doing? There's that kind of one school of thought that said, you know, athletes should focus on what athletes do best. Was that famous quote Charles Barkley said, I, don't, I get paid to dribble, not to, not to activate? Or 
Yeah, I mean, it's a shame that Charles Barkley was one of my heroes growing up. I used to be a big basketball fan, and I, I had Charles Barkley's game on my Sega Mega Drive, and I really, really enjoyed playing that. It's, just, it's a shame to hear him say that, because I, I, I totally disagree with Charles Barkley. Um, I think that athletes, um, they've got a privileged position. And again, this is a privileged position that they've worked hard for. I'm not saying that they, um, they haven't worked hard for it, because to become, a, to become a star athlete takes a huge amount of dedication and hard work. And I'm not taking that away from them. They, they deserve to be in the position that they are in. But they're role models to, to, to kids and to other people, whether they like it or not. And I think that if there's something they truly believe in, um, they should stand up and talk about it. Um, they shouldn't pay a, um, a cause lip service and they shouldn't get on board with the cause because they feel that, it's, uh, that they have to do it. Um, but I think if they feel strongly about something, which I think all human beings feel strongly about something in particular, they should definitely use their platform to, to talk about it and to, to, to try and move the needle on it. Absolutely. Mm. So um, the other group of people that I wanted to talk about was the sort of professional practitioners within the space. Um, so your, your publication is aimed at them amongst others. Um, what are you finding? Do you, do you think the industry is progressing? Do you think are there more people coming into it? Do you think that there's a, I mean, is there a gap between, um, you know, what pe people's understanding of all of this, the sustainability stuff and the ability or the level at which they need to operate? What's your assessment of what's happening in the on the professional end? I, th I think there is a gap. I think that you'll see people working in operational roles. Um, in sustainability roles, which is growing. I think we're going to see more sustainability roles in sport um, popping up, uh, which is a good thing. People who are working as kind of venue operators at ballparks and stadiums who are doing a lot of this greening work that you discussed earlier. Um, and these are people that are doing really good work. These are, these are professionals who really care about their sport. They care about the environment. They care about society. And they are trying every day to move the needle. What I see as the being the big, biggest issue in sport and one of the biggest challenges that we're going to face in trying to move the needle in sport in this respect is the, the, the people who are in charge of the sports, um, people who are in you know, roles, in real decision-making roles. And I think that a lot of it comes down to governance. That I think that, short is, that, that sport is a, is a very short-termist industry in many respects. You're always looking at the next event, the next season, um, and long-term planning particularly for things around the environment and society is, um, is limited at best and non-existent at worst in, in, in many sports. Um, so I think that there's a, there's a bit of a, a gap to bridge um, in, in the kind of governance stakes for us, for, for sport to, to catch up to the other industries that you discussed earlier. So what's it going to take to get those people in leadership positions to, to understand this opportunity and threat? Well, I think one of the things that, one of the positive things is that I think the diversity of people in leadership positions in sport on boards, in CEO positions, in C-suite positions is, 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 is it's becoming more diverse um, because it knows it has to become more diverse. If it wants to, if it wants to speak to the, the, the vast, um, the majority of the population that it wants to kind of engage uh, female fans, fans from ethnic minority backgrounds, young fans, they need to employ people who can who, who can speak to these people authentically, um, and I think once you get these people on board in leadership leadership positions, we'll see things start to change on the development side, on the sustainability side. But as you say, it's it's a, it's a slow process. Um, I think in the UK recently, in the past couple of years, they've they've created something called the um, Sports Governance Code, where they've tried to link. Um, they try to link board diversity with, with uh, government funding for, for, for a num number of sports. 
which I think is a potentially a good way to to, to increase diversity and in, and increase um, diverse thinking within sports, which could help for the which which could hopefully accelerate the um, sustainability in sports. Um, but that's a that's a that's a nation a national policy, and you know you'd have to see that change. Uh, you have to see it implemented in various other countries for 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 that to change kind of wholesale. I think. Yeah, there's a great example in the US with a thing called Title IX. Yeah, where federal funding was linked to um, basically gender gender metrics across the board, and it's been hugely successful. I mean, there's it's still not still not where it needs to be, but there's been a significant movement in terms of you know participation by women in sport and in leadership positions in business, and and so I th- I think sometimes it requires those kind of you know national legislative type of things initiatives. Um, to move the needle yeah one and of the great things they've got is is, is, is the, the french government which has backed a, a charter a 15-step charter which is mainly about the environment um, but if you want to host a sports event in france then you have to adhere or at least try to adhere at least to, to at least 50 to 50 these 15 steps so around food waste around transport around climate change around society um, and that's the French Ministry. So that's uh, that's another great example of uh, uh, of, uh, of national governments getting involved in, in these kind of issues. And that there's no reason why sports governing bodies can't do the same. I mean, we've seen the influence of the Agenda 2020 program from the IOC in terms of how that shaped the way that you know events like Paris 24 and LA 28 are shaped up. So federations also have a big role to play here potentially. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think um, taking the lead from the IOC, I mean, if you look at the IOC beyond Agenda 2020, you look at the new host city contracts, and now every single uh, city that wants to bid for the Olympics has to you know, provide a carbon management plan. They have to show how the Olympics is going to help help accelerate sustainable development in their city, which I think is I think is a, it's a good thing because I think when you think about the Olympics, people tend to be quite skeptical about the Olympics and think of, you know, white elephants of the past, Athens 2004. But if they can implement this kind of stuff, within a new hosted contract, I think we'll see a big change um, in the way the Olympics is, uh, is hosted. And, you know, you mentioned Paris. I think, what, 90% of the, uh, the um, venues have already been built. So already we're seeing a big change in, in the way the Olympics is, is going to be hosted. Yeah. i got to say the IOC have, um, you know, I think they lost their way for a while uh, during the 70s and 80s when the focus became on money ahead of values. But uh, it seems like they've really reconnected with the Olympian values and I got to say, I've taken my hat off to the leadership role that they're playing. I mean, one example of that is the partnership with the UNFCCC, mm-hmm. Sports Action. I can never remember the name of this. They need a new name. Sports <laughs> Action Climate Framework. Is that right? Sports uh, for Climate Action Framework. Yeah, that yeah, doesn't yeah. exactly roll off the tongue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah they need a shorter name. Um, I mean, that's that's similar to the to the French um, framework that you spoke about, but also calling for sports bodies to come forward and commit to do what five things. Yeah, there's five principles uh, that they have to commit to. Uh, they have to be systematic in their climate action. They have to communicate with fans and sponsors. Uh, they have to document things. They have to put carbon management plans in order. So there are yeah, there are five specific things they have to do, with their ultimate intention, hopefully, of becoming climate neutral at some point down the line. Yeah, and and I'm I'm, I'm always a bit skeptical of pledges. I mean, do you think this is a real pledge, or it's just a, an easy way for sports to pretend it's doing something? I think it depends on the organisation that's going to that's, that's adopting it. I think that, that the UNFCCC and uh, the IOC um, had good intentions when they set it up. I think you'll find a number of sports organisations that have signed up to it really have the intention of of going for it. Um, yes, I mean there is there is a danger that a lot of 
organizations will sign up to it for the PR purposes. You know, look at us, we're going to be climate neutral at some point and perhaps pay lip service somewhere down the line. But I think the, the UN FCCC has been quite explicit that if they see no... Um, if they see no activity from uh, signatories after they sign on to the, the, the framework, then they'll be very quick to kind of, you know, um, um, get it, you know, get rid of, get, get them out of the, the of the of the stable to, to, to some extent. So I think there are some teeth to it. Um, I, I suppose to some extent, you, they can't be too prescriptive about how sports do things because sports, you know, organisations vary from sport to sport and how big they are in their operations. But yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a really positive step for sport, and I, I really hope it's successful. Yeah, I hope so too. I mean, I know I didn't realise that the UNFCCC had said that they would delist people that didn't live up to the pledge. So that would be good. It'd be interesting to see who'll be the first one to be delisted. Yeah, hopefully none. Hopefully none. Hopefully they all, they all step up to the plate. <laughs> Matthew, I'm sure there'll be at least one. I'm sure. <laughs> so, um, so that's a good segue into what I wanted to kind of end off our conversation on, which is the future. So, mm -hmm. we think forward to 2030. It's the you know the SDGs have have wrapped up. Um, what what's the conversation we're having, Matthew? What's what's happened in this space and has sport risen up to the challenge to play a more meaningful role in terms of its contribution towards a sustainable future? I hope so. I hope what we'll be talking about, we'll be talking about the wholesale adoption of people in sustainability roles within sport, um, looking at chief sustainability officers or, or, or of that ilk, who will be maybe not within all sports organizations, but within the major ones, you know, the NBAs, NFLs, Premier Leagues, you know, those sorts of organizations that will have people and teams who are specifically in charge of these uh, these issues, um, and making sure that everyone within the organisation is working towards that. People in various other departments, finance departments, linking it all together, and it's it just becoming the language of sport. Hopefully, um, and what I hope that we'll see as well is I hope that we we see sport evolve um, because I think a number of sports are in danger really of becoming slightly irrelevant, um, and they know that they need to get they need to. You know, engage young people, particularly in the advent of, of you know esports coming around, and um, there there are so many things now that can occupy young people's time. And I think a number of sports are in danger of, of losing that engagement. Um, and hopefully, they see things like climate action and you know the sustainable development goals as as good ways, as things to adopt to to get these people on board and, be, and become more lifestyle brands than sports, really. Yeah, yeah. And do you think there's a risk that the, that sports that we know today will not no longer exist because they can't compete or events for that matter, like the Australian Open because of the you know, climate change. Do you think there's, there's any risk of any of that happening? I mean, they may have to adapt. Um, I don't think there'll be a risk that the Australian Open will, 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 completely, uh, will completely disappear from the face of the earth because it's, it's such an important event in the, in the, in the sporting calendar. But I mean, there, I mean there, are, there are potentially things that could change. I, uh, during my session at Global Sports Week, I had... Um, someone there from sustainability from the IOC and they said potentially 10 years from now if the climate change doesn't doesn't halt if it if it does accelerate then we may be talking about an autumn olympics rather than the summer olympics mm. so i mean hopefully there's no danger of any sports or events you know completely disappearing but they may have to adapt potentially yeah or lots more sports going indoors i guess yeah potentially but you know that 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 brings with it you know, other other issues and logistical problems so so there's a lot for sport to think about in this respect, yeah. But I mean, there's potential for sport to disappear because of the climate, but also because of lack of interest, potentially. Mm -hmm. You know, they need to start engaging the, young, the younger generation and, and, and actually, you know, thinking about what makes them tick and, and aligning with that, I think. Yeah, so this whole conversation is very relevant to making sure that sport remains relevant in, these, in younger people's minds. Absolutely. And I think now is, is, is a point now where sports 
in that kind of area need to start thinking about it because I, I don't think we've ever had a time like this. I think sport has always been relevant and sport has always been one of the most popular, it's not the most popular endeavor uh, in the world. I mean, only sport and religion can get uh, the, the amount of people that it does to, to be fully engaged. But I think that we're looking at a certain number of sports um, that could potentially, you know, lose lots and lots of interest if, if they don't really adapt yeah. and, and actually align with some of these, this new thinking that's happening now. Yeah. And um, what about purpose washing or? Yeah, it was purpose washing, green washing. Yeah, there's always a, a huge, huge danger of that. Yeah, of course. And it's incumbent on uh, people in the industry to, to call it out, I suppose. But I suppose there's two sides to this, Corinne. There's, there is blatant, unadulterated greenwashing. And there's uh, people and organizations that greenwash um, for out of ignorance i suppose because they don't, they don't they don't know any better and i think it's incumbent on sports organizations and executives to get educated to employ people in those positions that i was talking about the sustainability positions um so that they're informed about this informed about, about what's right and what's wrong and, and what they can do and what they can't do um so that they can guard they can they can guard against greenwashing and, and purpose washing so a good place to keep up to date would be a sports sustainability journal, I guess. Huh? The sustainability report, yeah, absolutely, yeah, it'd be the best place to. Uh, to <laughs> no, to that's the old name. Yeah, I keep using. Yeah, it. <laughs> no, no problem. Yeah, that's a good place for them to them to start. But there are lots of uh, lots of good publications now. I mean, even even mainstream sports media now, I think to some extent it's still paying sustainability lip service to some extent. But there are some publications now that are actually taking it seriously, writing uh, substantial articles about it, speaking to leaders in, in the industry. And hopefully that will just, hopefully that will just increase. That's just on that point, I was chatting to Alan Hershowitz the other day, and Alan reminded me of, it was 2008, I believe, when um, Sports Illustrated brought out their climate report for the first time. Yeah, 12 years now. Making the link between climate change and sports. So... Uh, but you're right. I mean, mainstream mainstream sports media also needs to. We should have spoken about them. They also need to wake up and realise that this this whole thing is happening around them, um, and become yeah. part of the conversation. I think mainstream media needs to needs to wake up anyway. Really, I think I don't think there's ever been a time in Europe um, and in the UK. I'm not sure about the US when we've been so sceptical of the media um, and sceptical of their agenda. Really, and also with this kind of proliferation of platforms like Twitter and social media there's so many ways to digest news now and get news and to kind of call out fake news um so i think the media in general the, the mainstream media needs to needs to needs to wake up because i think that they're in danger of becoming irrelevant as well as some other sports yeah yeah anyway we'll end on that negative note matthew <laughs> thank thank you for your time it's been great as always and uh, keep up the great work uh, I, for one, am certainly really happy that you guys came along and are doing what you're doing. So thank you for everything that you do. Thanks for having me on, Neil. I really appreciate it. I'm really looking forward to doing this and seeing the book when it comes out. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to this edition of Legacy Sport Live, the companion podcast series to our new book, Legacy Sport, how to win at the business of sport in the age of social good. Please visit our website at www.legacysport.org to order your copy of the book and join our growing community of sports business professionals committed to doing good while doing well through sport.